You can take your Bibles and open up to what should be one of the very last pages in it, um, at least as far as the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. And look with me at verse 6 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to do our best to work our way through this morning and hopefully even think a little bit of how the whole of this book, as we've looked at it over the past year, should impact today in the way that we live and the way that we think. So Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his slaves the things which must must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who was hearing and seeing these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the one who does unrighteousness still do unrighteousness, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still do righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. I bear witness to everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, we just thank you as we come to the end of this vision that you gave to John as he wrote and explained to the seven churches, even as we see as it is concluded the the flavor not only of John stating that these are the things that he saw and even his conclusion or his wish for the churches that your grace may be with them and by extension even to us in the church today. What we see is a clarity A clarity in a book so often thought to be confusing, but clearly the one who, humanly speaking, authored as your spirit carried him along to write these words, understood it as clear enough to impact the way that we live our lives today in this world as we wait 
for you to return. So help us be encouraged this morning and instructed in the ways that the end of all of these things, the end of this world as we know it, a promise of looking towards not only a millennial reign, but then a future new heavens and new earth, a new Jerusalem. May those things encourage us and motivate us to live for you today. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. It was towards the middle of the Second World War where Winston Churchill famously said this. He said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And if you had listened to that quote live, because I found the audio of it from a luncheon, they all chuckled towards the end because very, very much as kind of famous orators do, they say things that you go, well, I think what you just said made no sense. What we want to encourage them is that the end of the beginning of the war perhaps was done, but don't give up. Don't stop putting your hand to the plow. Don't think that we're simply going to, now that the major kind of conflict, at least from what they were seeing in England, now was pushed into, what you say, back into Europe. It's not even the beginning of the end to say there is so much more to accomplish. The beginning of the phase of the war was over, but the rest of the battle is about to begin. It's the kind of phrase that's well known to look forward to next phases, new opportunities, challenges, and learnings. Now, this is not the end. It's not the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. I thought of that quote as we come to the end of Revelation because it is not the end. It is the end of Revelation. It is the end of, hopefully for many of you, like me, who have been kind of laboring and studying and learning along the way. It's the end of this book as far as my preaching Sunday morning goes, but it is just the beginning of what you've learned and how you apply it in your life about what it means to understand and apply all 22 chapters about this theme of Christ returning in judgment. And it's summarized very well in this end or this conclusion, or some look at it as they talk in the, the term of epilogue. If we took the time, which we won't this morning, but you might even just off the top of your head kind of make similarity in notes. But if you went back to the very beginning of Revelation chapter 1 and the beginning in the introduction, you'll see very similar, you'll see this, this continuity, this similarity where you see the unity of this book. There are those who come and see Revelation as so confusing but really, you can see at different times the clarity. And one of those is as you see the beginning of the book and its purpose, and you see the way that it ends, its final message to its readers. There's nothing unclear about it, and it should have clear application that he goes into and in saying there is a blessing and there are some things that you should do. He's inviting you to do an application of your study of Revelation both to those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'd say also to those who do not. And he gives these two final invitations as he concludes the book. It's just it's fascinating to me in my own study that he never gets far from a gospel presentation in this book. There's always a little bit of thought in the back of his mind that someone might be reading this book who doesn't know what it is to know Christ. And over and over again, he gives different invitations, different calls, and it's no different towards 
the end. That is to say, all of these things that John saw, that he relays to the seven churches, which he relays down through church history, should make a difference in the way we see and understand today, tomorrow, and of course, the future. So let's get in and look together at this passage and see what we are supposed to learn. You look at Revelation 22, starting there in verse six, we've seen kind of all that's come in with the new heavens and the new earth. And so we, we kind of find ourselves there in eternity and in a new Jerusalem with the tree of life and everything is flowing and everything is perfect and every tear has been wiped away. And then there is a turn in verse six, a reminder from this angel who's with John to say, what you have seen with me, what you have heard, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his slaves the things which must soon take place. So God, who is true and is faithful, has sent this angel to show not only John, but all of his slaves, all of his followers, the things that are going to happen in the future. And we saw, and we haven't talked about it much lately, but this idea of soon, this expectancy of immediacy, this is the next thing on the eschatological, the, the end times calendar event. This is what comes next. And even it seems to apply, and we're going to see soon over and over here, just like we saw at the beginning, that when this does happen, there seems to be an expectation. And I think it could likely be the rapture of the church. But when you see that, there is an expectation that things will begin to wrap up quickly. It'll be soon. Quickly. Verse 7, verse 6. Soon take place. And behold, I am coming. This idea of quickly. When it happens, he will come, and it is the very next thing that we should expect. But as you see this, you're left with, I think, at the beginning, this, ad, this address to John, and then kind of by extension, all those, he says, to show not only John, but to his, plural, his slaves, which include us, slaves of Christ, so the Bible talks about it. We're invited to do certain things, and out of these two final invitations, this first one of this invitation to the believer is going to be, no surprise here, of obedience. Of obedience. Be obedient because we're going to see these words are faithful and true. This is immediacy. Again, you could kind of look and um, every one of these things has an urgency to it. The inspired words written by John are as faithful and as are true as anything else written in the scriptures. And he kind of alludes to that by saying in that second half of verse six that the God of the spirits of the prophets, that is when you think of your Old Testament for us, the spirit that led them, that inspired those words, whether you think of prophetic literature, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, that same God has inspired this, has given this vision. Those were true and they were going to happen absolutely. And this vision is true and it will happen as well. These words are faithful and true because if you get to the end of Revelation and you doubt the scriptures, you don't think it's true, it probably won't impact you. It's just the way we are. If we don't think there is a consequence, if you told me there's no way if I was traveling out to Western Nebraska that I'd get caught for speeding, I'd probably drive a little bit faster. I'm not perfect, but there's no, you're saying there's no way, but the thought process of, oh, but you might get caught. Oh, you might pay a huge fine. Oh, you, something might happen, changes the way that you behave because you believe this is true. It matters. 
for me, part of my kind of story of not only really, I was a believer, um, kind of my move towards ministry, I'd say, and especially towards a desire for more education came through my freshman year of college when I had a Bible professor. I was at a university, a Christian university. But in that class, which is a Bible class every freshman was required to take, he systematically for a whole semester, I would say, and I think he clearly did, undermined the authority of Scripture. So from the very beginning, whether he questioned whether Genesis 1, 2, and 3 were real, whether Israel was truly a nation and brought in all these things that I had never heard. And I think as an educator, he thought, well, this is good. I'm here to challenge you. But by the end of the 12 students in that class, there was only me and one other student who was still reading their Bible. And I remember thinking, well, I wonder why. Why there's only two of us reading the Bible? Because we're the only two who fought with the professor that we don't think he's right that we actually do believe the account of Genesis 1 and 2. We actually do believe that David was real, that Isaiah was really a prophet because he questioned all of those things. And those who are familiar, you kind of know the different views on things, especially coming out of German higher criticism. But the other 10 said, well, there's some good moral things in the scriptures, but why would I spend my life studying it? Because... They didn't believe anymore because it was undercut over and over again by that professor. They didn't believe it was faithful and true. This is a reminder that not only Revelation, but the all of Scripture, because the same God that revealed this, revealed these things to the prophets, and you could say the whole of Scripture, he is faithful and true and his word is true. And if it's true, it is worth your time. It is worth you paying attention and studying it to learn what God would want for you and your life. So just as the prophecies concerning, the other way of putting this, the first advent of Christ, that he's going to come from, you say, uh, Genesis chapter three, this promise that there will come one who will come from the seed of Eve, who will crush the serpent's head, just as that is true and it happened, just as this promise that there will be one born of a virgin, that David will have one from his line who will sit on the throne forever, that the Messiah will come. Just as those were fulfilled in time and history, just as the prophets had prophesied, this is this association here in verse six that likewise, these visions will come to, hap- come to pass in time, in history, and will be fulfilled in the future. I think this is one of the strongest cases because it's from John's own mouth or this from the angel, you could say to encourage John despite his challenging, and it's challenging at times with revelation, with symbols and an allegory and, and those kinds of things, it's to say, but it's not just allegorical symbols that we can't understand. They all have a real correspondence to things that will happen. And everything John has seen and the promise here, because God is faithful and true, his words are faithful and true, will come to pass. So John echoes the words of Peter when he says, 2 Peter chapter 1, that know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. So the affirmation here that it is going to happen just as you saw, it will be fulfilled. It may take a long time, and we've experienced some of that time, but it will come to happen. It will develop and it will develop eventually saying not only is the next thing on the calendar, but it will, once it all comes together, it will happen rapidly. He's coming soon. 
Not only that, verse 7 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And so there's some of this where you have the words of an angel, right? You see the words of John and you see the words of Jesus. And I think here when you have it pretty clear in verse 7 that this is the change from the angel to Jesus, that Jesus is saying, Behold, I am coming quickly. And blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the obedience. This is the invitation. If you believe these things, then keep the words of the prophecy of this book. What does that mean? To heed, to guard the book of Revelation. I think it is a kind of broad and general command to keep the words of Christ, yes, but also this idea of longing for his return and our eternal fellowship with him. Obedience to put your faith and trust in Christ, which he has called them to multiple times. Obedience to not give in to the persecution we saw in the first three chapters of the book, but to persevere, to be faithful. Just as the words are faithful, we're called to be faithful in our obedience to him. They should understand there is a judgment and it is coming and there should be a good and righteous fear of that, even though they're not going to face it all. They understand that Christ will return both to reward and to judge. We should apply these things and be obedient to the word. Well, not only obedience, but secondly, we see here that worship, worship is to be the right response. Now here, the implication of worship is misdirected at first by John. You see it switched from Jesus talking and we'll say the angel in six, Jesus in seven, eight, John, I, John, am the one who is hearing and seeing these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. We've seen this before and this isn't good. You remember in chapter one, where it was good, he fell down at the sight of Jesus. That was okay, but this is not okay because he is just a fellow slave. So when I heard these things, I fell down, I worshiped the feet but the angel says, stop it. Just imagine the angel thinking, you're going to get me in trouble. Get up right now. Don't do that, verse 9. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So even John, after he's seen everything, he's in awe of the future that God has for not only him, but for all of those that are his. And he is just ready to fall down. And even says here that it is this idea of worshiping the one who brought the message. And the angel very quickly says, there is only one who is to be worshiped and it is God and God alone. I know that in Protestantism or say broadly, many of you come out of backgrounds with broadly evangelicalisms, this isn't necessarily an issue, but there are plenty of different traditions throughout church history and different Say, for example, with the Catholic Church, where they, you maybe use the term venerate or honor, whether it would be Mary or angels or church fathers, saints. It's clear we're not to worship men, no matter how great they are. I have some favorite people that I like to listen to, preachers and teachers, but we don't worship them. We understand they are simply fellow heirs, fellow servants, fellow slaves, as it says here in verse 9. 
You're wondering if you ever get in that kind of conversation. I say, go to the end of Revelation and go, no, we don't fall down and we don't worship angels. We don't worship Mary. We worship God and God alone. It's super clear here that one of the invitations here is that after all that we have read, we didn't see it like John, but we've read what John saw, that it is a reminder to say God is worthy to be worshiped. It's worthy of us giving him everything that he deserves. So not only worship towards him, look towards obedience, following him, as we've seen throughout the book and worship that comes to him, but also you're gonna see this idea of an inviting for those who believe to not only worship, but to proclaim. The third response to reading this book, to studying this book is that you should be excited to tell others and proclaim the truth of this book. The message of Revelation, he doesn't go into it. He doesn't give us a caveat. You know, you ever think of uh, Peter saying some of the things that Paul wrote are difficult. John doesn't say, I know some of it's difficult, but he doesn't even say that. He says, it's clear. And he said to me, and this I think angel here is saying, it's so clear. That's this idea of don't seal it up. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. The instruction is the opposite. So if you're familiar with Daniel, and we've kind of looked there a few different times, but Daniel is told to shut it up, to seal up his prophecy till the end of time. The opposite here is the revelation of scripture is coming to a close is don't seal it up. People need to know this. This needs to be proclaimed. Why? Because the time is near. And again, that idea of it's the next thing that is going to happen. The message of the gospel of Christ from the church needs to be proclaimed. The fact that the words of this prophecy are not sealed show us there is no hidden, no secret meaning apart from the normal sense of the text. I'm not saying it's not hard at times. I'm just saying the expectation of the angel is this isn't, you, ha you have what you need. You don't need to shut it up or to hide it. I think it's why the angel goes on to say what maybe at first is a little confusing in verse 11. But he, he says, go ahead and let the one who is filthy remains filthy, one who is holy, kind of health, holy, because the angel's telling John that a person's response to the proclamation of this book, of the truth of the gospel, will decide their eternal destiny. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Rather understand the one who does unrighteousness, they're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep going that way. They're going to still do unrighteousness. And the one who's filthy is still going to be filthy. But let the one who is righteous still do righteousness. And the one who is holy, keep them holiness. We're going to see that as kind of a fourth point here in a moment. But back to this idea of proclamation. It is the call to be like Noah. That in the midst of judgment that is coming on a wicked world, He's to be a preacher of righteousness. The scriptures, Hebrews calls him, or Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. And Hebrews talks about Noah as well. But he does so in the light of coming judgment. And in a similar way, each one of us, not just the preacher, is to be proclaimers of the truth of this message that God is returning. And when he does this second time, he's come. And so there's a pointing back to what Christ has done in the gospel, that he came and his life and death and burial and resurrection 
that he died for sinners, yes, but also there is a fear of he's coming again and that time will not be for salvation, but it will be in the judgment we saw for the most of that book. From chapter six onward, it's pretty much judgment, judgment, judgment till we get to the millennial reign of Christ. And even then, we've got to enjoy the bliss of the millennium for a little bit before, wham, one more judgment before entering into eternity. That needs to be proclaimed, needs to be presented that we tend to go in and out of life and nothing changes and thinking maybe there is no consequence. And Revelation is saying, no, there is a consequence for what you believe. Therefore, be loving and be kind and proclaim these words. Don't seal up the prophecy and don't run away and say, I can't study, I can't read, I can't understand Revelation. Rather go, what I can understand, which is he's coming in judgment, proclaim that as clear as you possibly can to those whom that you interact with. And then I think lastly, the response here of simply then continue on being faithful, faithful in service. And you go kind of back to verse 11. It's this idea of you're invited to continue on. We're not going to change the world by ourselves. In fact, Revelation seems to clearly show us that it's going to get worse. And when it gets better is when Christ returns. That's a right understanding of history. And while we're here preaching the gospel, doing the ministry, doing the work of an evangelist, understand people are going to continue on. Those who are unrighteous, they're going to keep doing it. But you, the one who is righteous, you keep on being righteous. And you who are holy, you keep on being holy. Why? Why stay faithful? Because he's saying, I'm returning. I am coming. I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. Which is that double-edged kind of motivation. The motivation that he's returning and that's exciting because his reward is with him. And also, he's also coming to render every man according to his work. And depending on your work, that either makes you excited or not so excited. If you go into work and... um, I don't know different, I know everyone has different jobs and a little more flexibility than others, but if you have any kind of like chart, Excel sheet, tracks your time, time in, time out, time spent, it's that idea of you think of in the last week of your life and uh, just think of it within the context of where you work or the things you have responsibility in and you go, how did I do? Check, 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 check. Did I get it done? Did I get it accomplished? If, would my boss be happy What would I get according to what I have put in? It's the idea of reaping and sowing. What have I sown? And therefore, what am I going to reap? And that is a reminder here that he is coming and his reward is with him, which is exciting. But also there's a little bit of personal motivation here of working, striving, which the scriptures talk over and over again. And I'm okay with that. Salvation is a free gift. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to gain entrance into heaven. It's gotta be what someone else has done, namely what Christ has done. But understand that as we live and we walk as believers, as we are sanctified in Christ post-salvation, over and over again, you see this motivation of striving because we wanna please Christ because he has loved us first. We want to in turn love him and serve him. 
The knowledge that Christ could return and even this immediacy here that he could return at any moment. And you could say, if he doesn't return tomorrow, you might go to heaven tomorrow. Either way, life is fragile. There's an immediacy to it. And that immediacy should lead a believer into a life of action. You shouldn't be simply idle waiting for the Lord to return. That's not our job. Our job is to be spurred on, to be diligent and obedient servants, serving Christ, proclaiming, worshiping, as we've seen here. And so as you come to the end of Revelation, he's inviting those who already believe, those who are part of the church to do these things, to understand the clarity of Revelation and the future that is coming. But just like in so many ways, you never get far from his kind of evangelistic note of this call to come. Look down at verse 17. He doesn't just have the believer in mind here, but he has one who has not come. And so there is this kind of double call. So look at verse 17. We'll kind of come back to verse 13. But this overall, seeing this this invitation, not only to the believer, but to the unbeliever. And you could say the first part of 17 is really towards the believer because it says the spirit and the bride say, come. And I understand the bride there being the church. The spirit and the bride say, come. And it seems to be back to verse 16, which is they're saying to Jesus, come. So the church, the spirit, come Lord Jesus, come. Verse 20, that's the idea there. And let the one who hears say, come. But then there seems to be this movement. Let the one who is thirsty come. So I think the first half of 17 is talking about the Lord's return, come. But then... The movement then is to, we've seen the, the water of living waters before. And the second half, and let the one who is thirsty, the one who desires salvation, come. The one who looks out at life and his, is parched and is confused over purpose. He's saying, come all who are weary and heavy laden and, and come to Christ. You drink from his well and you'll never be thirsty again. It says, let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. The whole kind of arc of the scripture is kind of beginning from Genesis to here. And you've seen kind of that movement from a tree in a garden to the tree in the new Jerusalem. The beginning of the fall and the promise. And here again, this promise to those Come, if you are thirsty, come to Christ and receive the water of life. And he says, again, this is something that is without cost. There's nothing you can do to obtain it. There's, there's no money, no effort that can earn it. It's simply given to those who would trust in not what they have done, but what Christ has done. The Holy Spirit, verse 17, always is glorifying Christ. And the church, of course, wants to see the groom return. But then again, the invitation to those who aren't yet excited about the coming of Christ. He's saying, come, drink the water of everlasting life. Join them. And then if you do, you will be on the other side and say, come with the Spirit. But there's some motivations, I'd say, kind of given here for the unbeliever. So the one who this morning doesn't trust in Christ wholly, isn't sure 
if this is true, there's some reasons that the end of Revelation are going to give to believe. And one of them is, is that it's personal. That it's a personal call from Christ. Now I'll jump back to verse 13. It's personal in that he says, who is the one who's returning to rendering his work? He's saying that I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. The beginning and the end. Blessed are those, we're going to see, who are going to wash their robes. And so first of all, you're going to see that it is personal. It is personal in that it is the one who is fully God, who is fully man. If you drop down to verse 16, even more so, almost a complete theological understanding that Christ is fully God and he is also fully man. It says, I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you these things for the churches. And he identifies not just as the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, but also as the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That is, Jesus wasn't just God, but he is the God-man who came in flesh, descended from David, the promised Messiah. Saying, I am coming. And he is inviting. Just as we'll see, excited to look towards a gospel, next gospel of John, that he is saying, come. He has, Philippians 2, humbled himself not only to put on flesh, but even to the point of death on a cross. And so that invitation to the unbeliever, it is personally coming from the one who is not only the Alpha and the Omega, but also the descendant of David, fully God and fully man. And it's a reminder as well that if you do come, there is a blessing. Blessing that your sins are washed away. Blessed are those, verse 14, who wash their robes. You've seen this terminology before in Revelation. This idea of being clean and being cleansed. It's verse 11 that the unrighteous, the idea of the picture is they're filthy. They're not holy, they're filthy, they're dirty. You come to Christ, he says, blessed are those who come. Then the, you should come, why? Because your robes are gonna get washed. Your filth is going to be cleansed so that they may have the authority then. Because only one kind of person is gonna have the authority to go into the new Jerusalem and get the tree of life. They're the only ones who are gonna enter into those city gates, enter by the gates into the city. And yet again, gives warning not only here of those outside, but it, we're gonna see a warning as well towards tampering with this prophecy, but it's a warning that there is an inside and there is an outside. This isn't all-inclusive. There's a difference. Those who have trusted Christ and those who have not. Because those who have trusted Christ, their sin has been dealt with and they are cleansed as opposed to those who are still filthy and dirty. And then God cannot stand sin and therefore they are going not to be in, they are going to be outside, verse 15. They're outside like the dogs. And this of course is cultural. I have dogs and they're inside. This would be unheard of in their culture. This is looking at those who are moral and who are outside. And so the illustration is like the dogs that simply sit outside and would never come in. They're like that. 
They are the sorcerers, the sexually immoral persons, the murderers, the adulterers, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Those who are unrighteous, those who have not been cleansed. They're outside of the gates. And it's just a reminder, there is a heaven, there is a hell, which we've seen over and over again. And you want to be in the city. And there's only one way, and it's to turn to Christ and have your robes washed. That's the promise of the blessing here. Come. Let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. But if you're waiting and wondering, why would I come? I think verse 18 and 19 are helpful because they they kind of give a motivation to say, well, is there more information coming? And it seems very clear in 18 and 19, no, it is complete. Don't add, don't take away. I don't think this is an accident. This is the last book either of the New Testaments. You're not to be meant looking and waiting for future revelation. Rather understand it is complete. It's a, it's a personal offer. It's one that comes with a promised blessing, but it's also complete in its nature. And you don't need to keep looking out, waiting for more information or waiting for another sign. You're not going to get one. This is it. He says, I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. You don't need to go back too far. You don't want them. All those weeks, 6 through 18, all those bowl judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, you don't want them. This is a severe warning. You don't tamper with God's word. You don't tamper with revelations here, but also you don't tamper with any of it. Don't add to it. But also verse 19, don't take away from it. So don't soften it and go, well, there's no judgment because that's taking away from it. When you say there's no judgment, if you say there is no hell or outside the gates, you're taking away from it. Don't do that. Verse 19. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Again, that severity of saying it's going to represent the kind of person there that does that is one who is not even truly saved. The word is complete in every way. The revelation that we have is a full revelation. We're not waiting for more for the next word of the Lord or the next prophecy. I always get a little worried when I hear certain things. And I've said this before, but if someone says, you know, God told me or God gave me this, I'm always a little worried. I think of this passage, I think of other passages and go, usually they don't mean that. Usually they mean some level. If you ask them, they they have a intuition or they think this is what God would want. But I'm always careful with that. Because you asked, did God audibly speak? And they usually go, no, but it was almost like it was audible. And I go, I just want to be careful that I'm not adding to anything the scripture has said or comparing and putting prophecy uh, or or putting something that I think God would want me to do up here with revelation because there are different categories of things. Does God work in and through us? Yes. Does his spirit lead us? Absolutely. Just be careful not to put it on the level of revelation. We're not waiting for more. We have his word and it is sufficient. Don't add to it. Don't take it away. It is absolutely complete. It's a good reminder for both the believer and even the unbeliever. 
Because they might go, well, I want another sign. No, the point is we've already seen it. The question now is what are you going to do with it? But even believers can tend to want more and look for more and be more experiential. And I think this is a good reminder. No, we, we have his word and it is sufficient. Well, lastly, we see here this reminder as well, which is great and exciting for those who believe, but also a reminder that you can put off maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, but eventually you can't put it off forever because either you're going to die or he will return. And that is faithful and true. He will return. And that's what verse 20 and 21 end the whole book that he who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. So the faithful and true one has promised, I will come and it will be soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. I think those are John's words. And then not only is he excited about that fact, but you get the flavor because you might've forgotten as you've worked through Revelation that this is at its core, it's a unique epistle, but it is an epistle. It is a letter. And so just as you saw a very traditional uh, introduction where he addresses the seven churches, you see a very traditional ending, just like you'd expect in other books like Ephesians or Colossians, where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. His desire is that God's grace, God's compassion be with everyone. Why? Because we need it. Yes. And amen. But I think that is helpful because too often, as you look at the book as a whole, people look at it as simply kind of very apocalyptical and Yes, there's, there's natures, there's parts of it that are very much, we're dealing with end times, but also it is very traditional in the way that it is a letter. And so it is a unique book. And John seems to not need to add any more to it that what we have, we will understand. What we have, we know enough to obey it. And so it closes with one last reminder and that benediction, a reminder that Christ will return. And we look at other passages as well throughout the New Testament that this promise of Christ's return is he will come. It should cause us severe humility. Not only as believers, but even the unbeliever. This should say he's returning. It should cause humility to accept God's offer, that free gift, that water of life without cost. And so he fittingly then ends the book being reminded of God's gracious gift, the grace of Christ, which is at its core is his gift of himself on the cross. May it be with you all. And so as you look at the end of Revelation, you're reminded of the quote we talked about early on that this is not the end. And I've studied Revelation before and I learned 10 times more by studying it this time. And I promise if I did it again, I'll learn 10 times more. So it's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but for all of us, and maybe some, perhaps it's the end of the beginning. I hope you learned something. Something about the day of the Lord. Learned something about the rapture of the church. Became more convicted of those things. I know I did. Even the sobering reality of future judgment, being reminded of that over and over and over and over again. Hope you're encouraged as you looked at the hope that the scripture give us. Christ is going to return. He is going to wipe away every tear that there is a, even in heaven, the martyred saints are saying, how long, O Lord? 
but that one day the answer will be this long and now he will return. But don't let this be the end of your study of Revelation or the end of your thoughts of a future because it doesn't matter what book we go to, John or Colossians, you're never going to get too far from the immediacy, the expectation of the return of Christ. Rather, let it be the beginning of your understanding and hope for a future. Because as we get and grow and we'll be older tomorrow than we were today and etc. This is the true lasting hope of the believer that Christ will return, that the one who was resurrected, we will share in that resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and the clarity of it, of this final message and these final invitations that we see as we come to the end of Revelation. Application for anyone and for everyone. For those who would affirm the truths of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Those who would affirm and long for his return. Even for those who doubt and have questions. That they would see though, that those questions need answers and those questions need answers not tomorrow, not next week, but today. And so uh, we know that today, that salvation, that the call of the gospel is an urgent call. Today is the day of salvation. And so may we evaluate our hearts and ask ourselves, have we truly repented and responded to the gospel? Have we Even as believers, have we responded? In what way should we respond thinking of our own lives to this revelation that John was given and the impact then that it should have on our lives as we look not only forward to Christ's return, but also being reminded that all sin will be judged and that we look forward in expectation that the one whom we love and we long to see, uh, he will return and we will see him face to face. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.